Hello, and welcome to Caper Confabs, a health professions podcast from Caper Interprofessional by Design. Confabs are informal conversations. Caper Confabs aims to talk about a wide variety of interprofessional education and practice issues together. So, confab with us. This time on Caper Confabs, we'll be discussing the wicked problem of healthcare. Wicked problems are defined as those that are not easy to describe, have multiple causes, and are extremely difficult or even impossible to solve. They typically occur in complex social contexts where diverse stakeholder groups each understand the problem differently. Each wicked problem is unique and often the solutions for one piece of the problem cause other pieces to have greater issues. Like poverty, education, or homelessness, healthcare in the United States is a wicked problem. Achieving greater outcomes across the quadruple aim, improving patient outcomes, patient care, costs, and provider satisfaction requires grappling with an immense and complex set of problems, and a solution that might improve care might increase cost or impact providers negatively. One set of principles trying to guide solutions in healthcare are those of interprofessional education and practice. Organizations like the National Center for Interprofessional Practice and Education, the American Interprofessional Health Collaborative, and even CAPER are working tirelessly to solve facets of the wicked healthcare problem through incorporating team-based care, new payment models, patient-centered care, and numerous other IP models. Recently, the CAPER team was at the National Center's Nexus Summit. There, we spoke with many attendees about their work and what problems they were facing and thought they could solve or move the needle on in the next five years. Not surprisingly, 20 people provided 20 different answers. So, we will be listening to some of those responses and confabbing about the wicked problem of healthcare and how organizations focused to the issue can help drive innovative solutions. Before we listen back, I want to welcome today's panel. We have the ever-effervescent Dr. Karen Saywert, CAPER's resident evaluation lead and the senior director of our college's Center for Academic Innovation. I offer my bubbly hello. We also have with us our fierce, fearless, and fabulous senior instructional designer, Jeanette Senecal. And by senior, you're not talking about age, right? A warm welcome to all our listeners. And this morning, we have a special guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? I'm Barbara Maxwell. I'm a professor and university director of interprofessional education and collaboration at A.T. Still University. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you for being with us today. Before we dive headfirst into tackling the wicked problem, let's take a listen back to what a few of the attendees of the National Center Nexus Summit told us about moving the needle in IPE. There's so much change going on in the healthcare delivery system that IPE absolutely has to be a part of the conversation in healthcare delivery. I think at the conference here you heard about all the technological changes, um, new teams, all of that. And if we are preparing students in the academic programs without that very strong connection, we are absolutely not doing our students justice and not doing healthcare delivery justice. 
Um, my main area of interest right now, and I'm very concerned about this, is that about 33% of people that are transferred to acute, from acute care to the skilled nursing facility experience either a serious injury or an adverse event in the first week. This is definitely an interprofessional problem. It has to do with the IPEC values. It has to do with communication, understanding what each member of your team's role is and having respect for them. It has to do with accountability and handoff types of communication and pretty much the whole gamut of all the interprofessional values that we share. So uh, students are really feeling empowered by this. Where I'd really like to see things move in the next five years, especially at my institution, is for um, IPE and interprofessional collaboration to become, uh, to have a central home within the university instead of it being kind of spread out and just whoever decides this would be a cool project. Let's, you know, let's use the simulation center for both the PA students and the pharmacy students, that instead it's something that's threaded throughout the curriculum um, and, and even over, over into our, our clinical practices. There's our first taste of some of the problems we heard about at the summit. Jeanette, as an instructional designer, you face daily the wicked problem of helping faculty ensure that our learners are actually gaining knowledge. So, I was hoping you could share some insights about wicked problems and what approaches have led to effective solutions when dealing with impossible goals. I'm actually going to turn that around and ask a question first because, you know, I like to break the script. I'm curious uh, for, I'm curious whether any of you are familiar with this concept of a wicked problem. Is this a new idea? There's, there's some research and literature behind this way of articulating a very complex, systematic kind of um, conglomeration of doom. Is this something new to, to all of you? I can start with that. Uh, when I was researching it, I found it to be similar to IP in many ways that it's something that originated actually in the 70s, an idea that came about and has sort of found a resurgence over the past few years as people struggle to define and tackle many complex social issues. So it's something that I hadn't heard about but clearly has a long history. And for me, it really resonates with um, kind of the research that's been done on complexity and that recognition that things in, particularly in healthcare, are not as simple as they may seem on the surface. You know, that, I think the term wicked problems has come to represent things that we previously thought were solvable, but it may be that they're not things that are actually solvable. There might be more of a polarity um, you can go from one extreme to the other, but there's not actually a solution. And when we try to solve them, we fail because we're taking the wrong approach. What we probably should try to do is pull a little strength from each of those poles. And um, I, I think a lot of it is that with complexity, problems aren't solvable and we have to recognize that. So a wicked problem to me is maybe not a problem. It's probably more of a polarity and something that you can't fix. You can just change. You can change more to one, one end or more towards another, more towards collaborative teamwork or more towards individualized uni professional worker. So there's no right formula, there's no right, you know, there's no solution. And so I think a wicked problem is something that's not solvable because it's complex. 
Well, and that's a challenge for those of us that like to find answers. What really stuck out from the reading we did in preparation for today was a statement that's in uh, one of the articles, Michael, and, and with your permission, I'd like to reflect on it. I am drawn to metaphor and imagery, so this really stuck for me. And it's talking about uh, wicked problems uh, having connections. And that if we were to pull on a single thread of any wicked problem, we'd find that we're pulling many, many threads. And this is a quote. Imagine a multidimensional spider's web in the early morning covered with dewdrops. And every dewdrop contains the reflection of all other dewdrops. And in each reflected dewdrop, the reflections of all the other dewdrops in that reflection. And so ad infinitum. That is a Buddhist conception of the universe uh, in an image. It is also what a wicked problem can look like. Each piece reflects and connects to the others. Yeah, I think that's a lovely description, Karen. And I think, um, too, that some of the issues that we have addressing your your uh statement about you know some of us like answers and so how do we get to answers I think part of the answer is accepting that it is that complex and so some of the ways that we've looked at things and the lens that we've used to try to examine our work or examine what happens in healthcare come from our own professional training which can tend to be very based on the scientific inquiry where you know there's a input an expected output you measure a yes or a no you test a hypothesis and that doesn't work in wicked problems or complexity you, you know you imagine you're pulling on that one little um, tendril of the spider's web and you're changing so that sense of control isn't there so for me a lot of it is the wicked problems need us to look differently through a different lens and we keep using the lens of what we have from our own uni professional perspectives and that leads us down a road where they are forever wicked problems with no solutions because I think we're looking at them in the wrong way. Barbara I think that's a fantastic viewpoint and a great place for us to listen in on a few more of the issues we heard about. We do a really great job of embedding our students within IPE events and learning opportunities once when they're in their curriculum. However, what I'm finding is that the reality to take that next step to their clinical work is not there yet. So that is something that I would really like to see the issue is that our reimbursement system is still primarily a volume-based reimbursement system. So to get CFOs and hospital administrators and this whole country to move the needle, something's going to have to change pretty dramatically. And we're going to have to be the ones that are going to create that change because I don't see the government moving anytime soon to change Medicare and Medicaid. We need to flip the conversation. I love the idea of let's pay the patients to be adherent. Let's not pay the providers because they're not changing. So flipping the conversation and really turning the models upside down is probably the way of the future. I'd say a big lesson we've learned from the Accelerated Initiative is the importance of involving your community partner and the patients within the community and making sure that the project team asks the community what they need and want and then directly involving them within the group, inviting them to meetings, asking how they can help, what the biggest needs are, because otherwise then the initiative is just doing what's satisfactory to them and then the community's left 
out to dry or maybe there's something, a real issue that's not getting solved, but the community has a voice, they're more likely to participate and maybe even help sustain the project even more, help it to grow. Barbara, I know you have quite a unique perspective as the United States representative of interprofessional.global, which was, of course, formerly the World Coordinating Committee. So working with teams across the world trying to solve these problems, what approaches are the same? Are they more effective abroad? What are you seeing? It's really interesting to look across the global networks about what's happening because there's some networks for example there's a a wonderful new network in Indonesia where a person was tapped who's a relatively newly graduated medical provider and um, was tapped to say right start this interprofessional stuff off for us in Indonesia and no none of the usual hierarchy or rules apply it's just make it happen and this young guy has actually started a whole interprofessional network in Indonesia and he actually works with the government representatives he directly works with the government to make it happen and they've started off in practice in rural Indonesia and I mean just doing things completely differently with a different set of a no boundaries I guess a different and a, just a whole different way thinking completely differently about how we make it happen the same in India with the Indian network and also the South American network which has uh, recently evolved they're doing things very differently and they're not kind of hogtied by the um the system the way we've done things before they're you know they're not in great they're just making it happen and I think that um on a global stage is very liberating to see different networks around the world tackling these wicked problems in incredibly unique ways, not worrying about, well, what is, just making a change and rolling with it. And that is very um, innovative and very affirming and it makes it feel like interprofessional education and practice have a real future through these new innovative ways of dealing with wicked problems. I think I would be more concerned if everyone was using the same formula because of the variables that aren't being paid attention to. So it's in the diversity of solutions in a variety of contexts, in a variety of settings that gives us rich insights into what can work, but not necessarily what may work in our own individual situation. Yeah, and I'm going to circle back around a little bit to the first question that you posed, um, Michael, to thread these these ideas together. I, I don't have as much of the, the international perspective or lens, but one of the articles that I was reading recently about wicked problems through the lens of international public management approaches, and one of the, the themes that emerged was Again, maybe there's no solution, but maybe we can have strategies to deal with wicked problems. And in particular, uh, this author, Nancy Roberts, outlined this way of thinking about pools of authoritative strategies, meaning the impetus is on a few key individuals in a position of power, such as policymakers or governments, or those strategies that are competitive. In other words, you may pit economies against each other, things like that, or collaborative. And I think 
this idea that collaborative strategies may be the most logical and effective way to approach a wicked problem, maybe not solve it, but approach it, means that it's so well aligned to the the ethics, the values, the norms, and the expertise. The questions that people in this interprofessional space are already asking are a perfect connect to this thought of, well, we realize we may need to nibble away at this on so many different levels. I like your nibbling analogy because its relationship to wicked problems is you nibble away and you find another layer of wicked problems. And you nibble away at that one and you find another layer of wicked problems. And I think that goes to Barbara's point that it's it's a, a continuous process. Uh, it's seemingly unending because we keep nibbling away and chunking different pieces and parts out. And so what better way to try and nibble away than with a group of collaborators? I love it. Let's hear from just a few more folks at the summit, and then we'll, we'll wrap this up. How do we look at return on investment of what are the cost savings and benefits of retaining employees, having satisfied patients, getting new patients to the clinic, things like that? How do we really speak the language to the people that make the billing and financial decisions? And we've actually met with a Medicaid provider in the state of Nebraska and a private payer and said, look, we need you to change how you reimburse care. Can you reduce the ED reimbursement and pay more for a primary care visit? So I'd like to see in the next five years that we're comfortable speaking to payers and saying, this is yet you're telling us is what you want, but you don't reward us for it. So there's a huge discrepancy. So I would like to really have us continue to challenge that. And to teach related to IPE, it's not just about being in a team. It's about teaching them how to be a change agent and navigate the health systems. I think in my mind is a real need to address the issues that we have around we're constantly criticized for being atheoretical in what we do. That's one part. And we're constantly asked the question, does it work, does it work, does it work? And people have a hunger for tools to answer the question of does it work? So I guess if I thought of somewhere where my work is trying to change the needle, it's trying to help people think about their interprofessional work in a more theoretical way so that it's, they know what it is they're trying to achieve. Because I think we often develop programs, but we're not too sure what they're actually doing to the people in them. And so I have been trying to get people to consider different ways of thinking about measuring the impact of what we do and doing it in a theoretical way by building theories about the programs that they have and how they actually roll out in the realities of practice. So the real program, not the imagined, what it really looks like when the rubber hits the road and trying to find ways... Um, particularly in my contribution, I think, is the knowledge of realist evaluation and how that can help people think about what works for whom, in which circumstances, in which particular contextual conditions. And the real hub of it is why. Why is that happening? Why is that changing? What do our programs do to people's thinking? How does it change their reasoning? And how does that change in reasoning change their behaviour? And lead to different outcomes. So I think that's somewhere where 
I really think we could tackle the atheoretical, you know, your atheoretical and interprofessional and um, show us the evidence that it makes a difference. In five years, what I imagine is that we won't even think that it's unusual to have patients integrated in advisory teams, um, in policymaking ventures, in design of curriculum. I know at the University of New England we're already doing that. Um, we are designing courses that are developed by patients and, and community members. They're teaching those courses, they're evaluating those courses, and we just won't, it won't, like in five years we shouldn't be talking about IPE. We should be just talking about good practice, quality practice, safe practice. Now we've heard nine different perspectives and discussed a few approaches for dealing with wicked problems. And I think it's fitting, Jeanette, that you talked a lot about the need for collaboration. So I want to hear from you what kind of role the larger organizations like the National Center, like AIHC, and even those like CAPER should or should not play in helping to facilitate greater movement towards solutions. And Karen, I was hoping you might kick us off as our lead evaluator. Oh, I was still caught up in the theory and the, the circular definition of a theoretical and theory. Um, and I was actually, you caught me off guard because I was looking up, what in the heck do we mean by a theoretical? And so it's a challenge to, to Barbara on that. When we start talking about this stuff in terms of it's, if we're a theoretical, we don't have a theory. Seems rather like a circular way of, of talking about something. So I have a challenge to you, Barbara, from a realist uh, theoretical perspective. How would you describe the spider web of the earlier part of our uh, time together? Oh, that's a, that's a great one for a realist because realists are, believe that everything is context specific. And so that contexts um, can, and elements are connected. What happens, resources that you deliver to people interact with their reasoning, with the context that they're in and produce different, very different patterns of outcomes for different people experiencing the same, what looks on paper like the same program. And so I think that spider web analogy and especially the droplets all reflecting something that's happening somewhere else but not exactly as it is somewhere else it's modified it's changed because of where that droplet is on the spider's web so I think it's it, you know, it is that it's a way thinking about how do we a acknowledge that it's complicated that it is messy, that it is a big spider's web. When we acknowledge that, I think that's the first thing we have to do, then how can we actually start to unravel the little pieces of the web? How can we look at a piece? Not, you know, my whole argument about it's not a thing. Interprofessionalism, whether it's practice or education, is not a thing. It's not a pill. It's not a tablet that you can give. It's not an, a, it's not a prescription you can give, and you can test the effects biologically, the effects it has. It's so contextually dependent, so dependent on the different individuals, their past, their experiences, the exact exposure on that moment. So let's just accept that it's a complicated spider's web and start to unpick the pieces. Because for me, it's acknowledging that there is no absolute truth. There is no absolute right answer. Um, it's, uh, you know, I love Karl Popper and I love, you know, 
all that thought about why we have um, null hypotheses is because nothing's provable. I think we need to remember things like that and recognize that we're building a puzzle. We learn a piece more. Every time we explore one of those little threads of the web, we're unraveling something more. We're adding to our knowledge. Then we unravel another, we add to our knowledge. So I think rather than addressing do, do things work? Is there an answer? Is there a yes or a no? We're really trying to unravel all those little pieces of the web and build and build and build and build on our knowledge as we do that. And it recognizes that it's incredibly complicated and it's going to take us time and it's going to take effort and it's going to take many people looking at different little aspects of that web. So for me, the analogy that you gave is just, you know, that sense of, of our metaphor of the web is absolutely spot on. Um, and we're just in the mass of unraveling. If I can add to that, and I've totally forgotten your original question, uh, Michael, so you're going to have to repeat it for me. And then maybe this is part of, we're, we're in our own web here because we went off trajectory, if you will. These are the kind of conversations that Barbara and I fall into regularly as we embrace uh, all things evaluation. And so I appreciate that you continue to school me in um, strengthening my role as your uh, evaluation spirit animal. And uh, to, to that end, I started to think about developmental evaluation and theories associated with that. And if we think about the spider uh, that sets off, um, not that I've had any conversations with spiders lately, but that they set off to spin their web. And in the world of, of thinking about develop, developmental evaluation or solutions to wicked problems, we may set off thinking we have a particular result in mind, a particular solution in mind, and then something gets in our way. And I think about, uh, have any of us, not that, again, I think we're out there on the weekends looking at spider webs, but have have we ever seen one that looks the same? Uh, and when I've seen what have been gorgeous spider webs, um, not that I'm thrilled with the spider, but when I see the spider web, I'm struck by how it works around, whether it's twigs, whether it's leaves, whether it's part of a building, it, it works with what it has and works around what it has. And from a developmental perspective, this is uh, challenging the notion of that trajectory of accountability to one solution. And that along the way, we as the spiders may have to veer left or veer right um, and find a new way that's going to reveal itself in a new pattern. And I think that's the excitement now. We're talking very theoretically, but helping ourselves and each other to talk and in ways that help us have mental models for how to talk about this because what does it mean to be theoretical um you know theoretical to me does not imply not being practical and pragmatic because that's a part of trying to find strategies and solutions but you can kind of get lost in the, in the high well i think what you were saying actually kind of really gave me a fire there because when you're talking about and now i'm just stuck in a web but what i can't get out of my head now is what you were talking about in terms of spiders building their web within an environment and so what i'm thinking now is we don't need to change the web we need to change the environment around it put less obstacles in its way i think it just gives me hope that there's more than one way to approach this and I'd love to hear from Jeanette about the original question. 
Yes, I'm going to leave the theories and the models and the metaphors to you all because you have brilliantly captured those ideas. And I'm going to go deeply literal back to your question about the role for organizations. To me, I think about it in terms of setting the stage for those collaborative solution building opportunities to occur. They provide communities, convening spaces, and catalysts for us to do this work. Ideally, the, the ability of a national organization to reach like-minded collaborative solution finders on that level is really powerful and really important. So when we we go to events like the Nexus Summit or or any other, you know, organizational event like that, it's not just going to learn together, but it's going to be together to again reconnect on those values, norms, and initiatives and share those ideas as we begin to nibble away at the various layers of the complex wicked problems. And one final very deep thought. Any day that spiders have not grown wings is a good day. (laughs) Okay, now I have to, I fully embrace that in oh so many ways. I was sitting here contemplating whether there was a PETA organization that protects bugs because they would come after me um, frequently. Yet what I'm struck on and the connection, the connection that I am making is, is that without the spider, we wouldn't have the web. Yeah, and I think the way that you describe that, you know, it is exactly what happens when people roll out collaborative programs, that little spider's working away, building, building, building. And in their head, there is some notion of what it's expected to achieve. But as they go through the process, it's the same as, you know, if a policy comes down, you've got, you're going to do this now to try to improve collaborative practice and, you know, collaborative, collaboration and practice. Um, the policy might have had a particular idea or agenda of what it was going to do, but then it hits the people who have to implement, you know, who are responsible for, say, a hospital, who have to make it happen. Then it hits the people who are the people who have to implement it in their department. And then it hits the people who it's actually targeted for. And all along that way, as it's being built, it's evolving and changing. And it's never the same thing when it comes out as the web at the end as the intention that was there at the beginning. And so I think that sense of thinking that things are linear, thinking that, you know, it's cause and effect and we can look at those things. Um, You know, I think I, I loved what Jeanette said about, you know, the organizations have an opportunity to pull together community and the community part to me is really important. Like minded people who you can chew these ideas over with, who may think differently than you, who will add to your thoughts about how you might do things. That is a really rich source of, um, in a complex world that's ever evolving of wicked problems, that is really valuable because it's so easy to get, you know, pushed down, well, it's not solvable, it's not redeemable. But then you're in this community of like-minded people through your organizations um, interprofessional organizations and there you have that it's uplifting it's um, it's positive it's a sense that yes we're make, together we're making headway we're all taking our little piece and examining that but together we're all tackling the whole so is wicked good I mean I, I just dove off the edge on that one but yeah. I, I gotta throw this out there because when I think about the idea of what um, do words matter and how we talk about um, things matter. And so does it serve us well to talk about these 
quote-unquote problems in in their wicked sense. Um, Is wicked good? Without the wickedness, would there be any movement for change? Conjuring up whatever that means, it's just stuck in my head now in terms of uh, we need our webs and and we need... uh, Maybe our not spiders. need. Uh, we, well, I guess we need our spiders, whatever and whoever they may represent. But the whole notion of of wicked problems on first blush, when first introduced to hearing that, it seemed like a not great thing to have. And I'm pondering now if it's exactly the impetus that we need. Yeah, and I would say it's it's a unfortunate that the term wicked was used because um, it's really complicated. Complex, difficult. Absolutely. You know, complexity. I think is at the heart of it. Yes. Wicked is probably labeled onto it, and words absolutely have part. Wicked probably was the term chosen because of the difficulty of dealing with them that they become wicked problems. One of these articles invoked some serious names. And for our listeners, all the resources we've discussed are in the show notes. We encourage you to explore those and take a peek. But um, in particular, they invoked some big names here. Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., Cesar Chavez, James Grant. And the point that they made at the end is that the solution or the lack thereof really isn't the point. Hope and progress lie in the struggle forward. That's really inspiring. Let's go spin our webs. And not to suggest we get stuck in each other's, but to spin them for the beauty they portray. I truly can't think of a better way to have wrapped up our discussion. I have been your host, Michael Morimarco, Caper's resident project manager, and I want to thank my panel for an incredible confab today on the wicked problem that is healthcare and IPE's role within it. We all know that it is an uphill battle, but I am certainly comforted knowing that the amazing people like you and those that we spoke with in Minnesota are working every day to find solutions. So I want to leave you all with an uplifting quote from Dr. George Tebow, President Emeritus of the Josiah Macy Jr. Foundation. Well, first I'd like to say we're in a better place now than we were 10 years ago, and one of the reasons we're in a better place was the creation of the National Center. So when uh, we began working in the IP field uh, 10 and a half years ago, we were reviving an old concept. We didn't invent it, but it had not caught on, uh, particularly in the kind of mainstream of higher professional education. And I think with the work of the grantees that we've supported, uh, the work of national organizations, and the work of the National Center, we now have established uh, the expectation that there will be interprofessional education that will be part of the experience of all health professional students and that we need to make one of the core competencies for all health professionals team-based competencies. So now that we we have a base to work from, we have experience doing it, there's generally broader acceptance in the educational world that this is educationally sound and valuable. The next big step is to connect that with collaborative practice, and that really is what the term nexus uh, was created to mean. So I think the center in some ways was prophetic in anticipating that that's the direction this movement needed to go in. And really it's out of the classroom and into the clinic, I would say. It's making the interprofessional experiences relevant to -to day-to-day practice with the goal of ultimately showing that they lead to better patient outcomes. 
and that's that's the hard work ahead, but exciting work ahead. And the participants in this summit uh, are hard at work, uh, exactly in that field. Thank you for listening to Caper Confabs. We'd love to connect with you and hear about your buzz, so please check out our website at ipe.asu.edu. Engage with us on Facebook or Twitter, or email us at caperconfabs at asu.edu. Well, or they were, or they were from Boston, or they were from Boston, and it was just a wicked problem. <laughs>